एक मिनट रुक जाओ रेडी होने दो चलो ये कर लेते हैं अक्षय Hi this is Saurabh and you are listening to the Founder Thesis podcast. We meet some of the most celebrated startup founders in the country and we want to learn how to build a unicorn. Do you remember a time when shopping meant carrying a lot of cash in your pocket? Loyalty Rewards has been instrumental in helping shift consumers' attitudes and replace cash with card and thereby paving the way for many of today's fintech unicorns and Vijay Jayarajan who founded Loyalty Rewards is one of the few founders we have interviewed who have generated actual profitable exits for his investors when Loyalty Rewards was acquired by Billdesk for 100 million dollars here's a peek into his fascinating mind and his attempt to fundamentally disrupt how we use the internet with his second startup Jayarajan uh, I'm a technology entrepreneur based out of Singapore uh, originally from India my first venture was based out of India uh, and uh, I ran that company for 10 years post which it got acquired and now working on my second venture uh, equally excited to be the to be doing the second venture as much as I was excited to do the first venture so these are early days and and putting the head down and working right now so uh, Vijay where are you based I mean where are you from originally like where's your what where are your roots oh i'm from kerala and more often than not the way i say it is i'm a, i'm an original mallu and i say that uh, that way because i pretty much born and brought up in kerala died in the old mallu up till my 18 years so first 18 years i spent there so first time when i went to went out of kerala i had a hard time because i only spoke malayalam and uh, the college you know whether english or some bit of hindi where did you go for your graduation i went to a college called loyola in uh, chennai a great college uh, very transformational 3 years but yeah mm. in why did you choose to go out and <laughs> specifically that course that college i think uh, uh, the only reason is that i think all of us in the family including myself uh, we knew that remaining in trichur is really not not an option it didn't it didn't open up a lot of opportunities so the idea was to just get the kid out and give him an exposure and see where it goes uh, and uh, we knew someone in loyola you know some of the relatives had gone and studied there so that's the only thing which we knew so they said okay let's send him there parents uh, said go study there there was no particular uh, reason in fact uh, I, i i did my bachelor's in uh, uh, in, in arts and humanities uh, majored in history actually so the idea was you know the only thing that people knew in trichur is you know history and then upsc maybe an you know son could become an ias officer uh, very limited uh, uh, visibility to multiple opportunities or options so I, i picked up and left and went and joined loyola and like you said like the interesting point that you brought up i went there and i saw this whole lot of really smart guys and i was this guy who couldn't say excuse me when i sneezed and uh, it was a hard uh, a time coping up you know learning learning to talk learning to talk in english uh, learning to make yourself presentable uh, making yourself articulate it was a challenging yet transformational window those three years were i always look at those three years as a, a very pivotal three years of my life so by 1995 when you were passing out so w- what were you like at that stage what did you want to do next did you have more clarity little more clarity than when i originally started off but not uh, not diversified uh, i went to loyola and joined in the history department as a student and typically you know one would do that if you either want to be a professor or academics and that's clearly not my cup of tea the idea was to do upsc and become a civil servant and uh, when you are in loyola the whole idea is you know go to delhi write your civil services examination and one of the most popular routes were going to jnu so it is my two years in jnu when i was doing masters is when i actually decided 
that UPSC is not what I want to do. I don't want to become an IAS officer. Or that's not the line of work that I want to live my life with. Uh, and then got attracted to uh, corporate world and, and uh, yeah, then pursued it from there. I think there was very clear visibility on what I wanted to do after that. And I've just always been focused on building life around the corporate world. Well, how did that happen? I mean, JNU is a pretty insular institute and, you know, most kids there are not so corporate oriented as, say, if you were in a B school. So how did you get attracted to the corporate world? I think two reasons. Uh, one is uh, when you are in JNU, it's also a place from where a lot of students qualify and go on to become civil servants. And you have a lot of friends and you started to see people who already cleared UPSC, some of some of them I, IPS or IRS, IAS, IFS. And then, you know, you get a glimpse into their lifestyle, uh, you know, working, whether it is in Delhi or in one of the, you know, uh, rural area. But the closer and closer I got and better visibility I got into what is life as a civil servant, while I admire their dedication and commitment to building this nation, I, I started to realize that that's, that's not my cup of tea. That's not how uh, I wanted to do things. So honestly, it was a it was a, a puzzling period because I finished my master's and wasn't really qualified to go and do anything big in the corporate world. But that's really what I wanted to do. So I took a year off. Actually, I took a year off after my master's. Uh, as they, it wasn't that popular then, but as they call it, the gap year, right? Uh, I I did a fair bit of interesting things. I stayed back in Delhi. I finished my master's and didn't go back to Kerala. I stayed back in Delhi. Parents were supportive. Uh, to send me pocket money every month to make the ends meet. I did a fair bit of travel during that window, backpacking across different parts of the country, you know, backpack into Bihar, backpack to Rajasthan, backpack to Kashmir. Uh, and also, you know, tr sometimes traveling alone, sometimes just with another person. It's, it wasn't never with a large group and it wasn't so much of a fun trip uh, as much as it was discovering myself. So go to ISBT and catch a bus and go to wherever it takes you. So if you are in, for example, Jaipur, and if you want to go to Udaipur, you will sort of figure out what is the bus ticket fare from Udaipur back to Delhi. Keep that money aside so that I know I can get back to Delhi. And if there is money left, then go to Udaipur. So really backpacking included, you know, hitchhiking uh, uh, or, or, you know, or getting in a bus, getting in a train, whatever, which gets me to the next city. Uh, spend a bunch of, you know, days there. I have traveled across Rajasthan without ever checking into a hotel for many days. So it could be brushing, How your, did you manage oh, brushing your teeth in the in the in the bus stations when you get off in the morning, uh, taking a shower when you when you are in Chitorgar Fort and uh, you see a waterfall. So you know, jump in the waterfall and take a shower. So pretty much using public facilities and traveling across. I went all the way up to Mount Abu on that trip actually. Nathwara, Haldigati, Jaipur, Jaipur, everywhere and. Uh, so I did a bunch of travel during that window. So one year you spent traveling, then towards the end of the year, where were you at? Towards the end of the year, um, I decided to start working. In uh, uh, Delhi at that point of time, if I had to start working, I would have again, you know, become a copywriter and an advertising agency. Uh, that, that would make not enough money to fill gas in the bike. So I actually went, uh, got a visit visa, literally a visit visa, and went to this place called Muscat in Sultanate of Oman, and uh, went there and uh, sent out resumes to a whole bunch of companies, faxed resumes, actually, these are the days of fax, actually, and uh, got a few interview calls, uh, went to one of them, and uh, I, I got a job. I actually started working in an advertising agency. I didn't know enough to know that advertising agency has something called client servicing or something called creative or something called media plan. So I went there and, you know, give me some job and what can you do? Uh, I can talk. That's what I can do. <laughs> so I was a junior account executive. That's the first job in Muscat. I think by then I was probably 23, 24, 23, hmm. turning 24. But that was a pretty bold uh, bet to buy a ticket to a country. You must have cost quite a bit. and you know, with no clear sight of how it will pay back. I think, actually, there was never uh, there was never fear. I, I was never ever governed by fear. Uh, I always felt that if, if there's something which you want to do and you go for it with uh, all your heart, you can do it. I mean, you know, when you're going to a big country and if you can't get a job, what good are you? So I never felt that if I go there on a visa, visa I wouldn't get a job. That, that, that sounds ridiculous for anyone so i just went there and like i said you know i could talk by the time 
you know, we're talking about masters in another year. Uh, the handicap of not being articulate, etc., had gone away, uh, and I could talk. And yeah, uh, I got a job. I never, never that. I don't consider that as a bold step because see, I wasn't going there saying that I need to get a top job. Right? I need to get a job equivalent to one of the premier MBAs. And I was still grounded enough saying that I, I, all I've got is a masters in history. So get a job and start somewhere. We'll figure out. We'll probably. So the idea at that time was, you know, go work in the Middle East for a few years and then then uh, uh, go to the US and go do MBA from Harvard or wherever you can. You know, I must say, I was while on one hand I wrote GMAT and wanted to go to the US and do an MBA, etc. But I've also always been an endophile. Always personally been an endophile. Uh, want to be in India. Uh, want to live here i wasn't one of those guys who felt that uh, going to us and getting a job there was the end of the life huh? which is what a whole generation of youngsters grew up with that feeling right i wasn't one of them so while in dubai this whole new concept came along uh, called the indian school of business and then i heard you know people like uh, 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 rajat gupta and sumitra goshal and, and deepak jain and and pramod sinha and all of all of these names were drumming up the spirits and the idea of uh, being a part of a business school which is being created you know from ground up uh, to create a business school of global standards in this part of the world that was very appealing so i applied straight away to isb and didn't apply to any of the business schools in the us isb in fact didn't have uh, any roots or backgrounds or nothing so when i first applied to isb our application package was exactly the same that was being used in kellogg that year isb had a partnership with kellogg while it was starting up and our, our applications were also evaluated in kellogg that year which in other words saying that if i had applied to kellogg i probably would have gotten in there as well the criteria was pretty same and i had a, a, a decent gmat score particularly for a you know humanities background student and i had international work experience so it wouldn't have been very difficult to go to a good business school in the us uh, but i went to isb because i was really excited about the idea of uh, being a part of a group that's creating a business school so you were in the first batch it, it, is it it's, like the first it's, batch it's extremely uh, you know sticky point it's called the founding class that's what we are called <laughs> even 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 the isb as as the as the school now refers to class of 2005 or class of, class of 2003 but we had never called class of 2002 we called the founding class so you were in the founding class of isb so what was that experience like was it another transformational experience like loyola was yes and no yes and no but i think i had more fun in loyola transformational yes because isb was good learning isb had the best of professors that you could ask for really because isb basically didn't have any professors on board because this is just the beginning i mean there one or two professors joined the school but otherwise it didn't have a spectrum of all subjects all professors so what isb did is it went and picked and you know chosen the best professors for each stream from different parts of the world so that one year i was taught by professors from stanford wharton kellogg uh, lps insiad you name it Stan, you know so the best of professors from the world in their respective subject if i if i had to be taught uh, uh, marketing either deepak jain or uh, uh, srinivasan these are the best names in the marketing uh, academic world at that time if we were to be taught uh, uh, negotiations for example then madan pelotla from london school of business will come and teach you so it, it has an interesting model where we had really the best of professors coming in from different parts of the world and teaching so from a curriculum and from an academic perspective i believe that that one year perhaps is probably the best in the world anywhere including howards and wartons because they didn't have the option to pick and choose the best from different places right so from a pure academic curriculum perspective that one year perhaps was the best one year of management education in the world so that was good uh, uh what wasn't so good as uh, i really struggled uh, isb had an amazingly outstanding class as founding class uh, i had you know tons of iit engineers floating around on campus and i couldn't really compete academically i couldn't compete because they were just really very very strong and uh, uh, yeah i struggled through that window by then i had also become sort of you know unlike the school days which i talked about when i was dormant and not a studious kid uh, but through the loyola years and jnu years and and then working in muscat working in dubai one a sort of developed an attitude about yourself and you've got a winning smell 
sell to yourself uh, and then suddenly you go to this business school where there are so many guys with that winning smell that you know this is typically what i've heard is this is typically what happens in iitms when when you know kids from different parts of the world who are really the best of their lot in the, in their area and they go to iit and they see a whole lot of other guys who are equally better or much much better and that that's a you know very revealing year for iit engineers in the first year of their campus and for me it was a little like i just suddenly got thrown into the middle of a whole lot of really smart guys so that one year was pretty intense pretty intense one and from campus where did you get ha huh, that is an entirely you know challenging window so i passed out in in 2002 so you can imagine how the corporate world was in 2002 right so once rajat gupta came came to campus and he's the founder of isb right and uh, and he was at that time the pinnacle of his glory right uh, he was the md of mckinsey and stuff and he comes and stands in front of us and tells us that in my 30 years of corporate life i've never seen a year this tough for recruitment so it was a struggle it was really a struggle for the school also because see the school this is the first class this is the founding class and getting this bunch of guys placed is extremely important for the school from a reputation perspective right it was also a very expensive school and it had a lot of you know press visibility media visibility so for isb the class getting placed is very important even from a longevity perspective or even viability perspective will this model work and at the same time it was a terrible terrible year from a corporate recruitment perspective b school recruitment perspective and i think all of these guys you know all the all the folks who were associated with isb did put in all the efforts that they could to make sure that you know calling companies and say hey, there's a whole bunch of good guys go to isb to recruit so that happened and eventually i got recruited into jet airways so my campus placement was into jet airways as a management training I didn't of course remotely think when i was going to business school that i'll go work for an airline the only airline experience that i've had before isb was you know two or three flights that i've taken before that you wanted to join like a marketing yes. agency I was very clear that I wanted to go into marketing and maybe then general management but clearly and joined jet jet was jet came to campus had five rounds of interviews and they had you know whole kind of psychology tests and group discussions and all of that yeah eventually there were five five of us who were recruited into jet airways that year and yeah that's that's how i came to mumbai so four years at jet uh, what were you doing in those four years uh, again i think in some way i would look at that's that's a sort of a a second transformational year so to speak uh, in some way I look at those four years as my similar to the years in loyola because that is that is the first true blue corporate job right before that in muscat and dubai i was really young juniorish uh, figuring out but here post a business school education you know one gets some responsibilities and that's the time when you can sort of prove yourself so i worked in jet for uh, four years and as a matter of fact globally airlines don't really recruit from business schools so if you go to uh, you know harvard or wharton or stanford or anywhere uh, you hear that you know the vcs or the consulting companies or the i banking companies they are the top recruit or tech these days but you never hear that you know uh, an american airline or uh, delta is the top recruit a day zero recruit it's never the case so airlines typically don't recruit business school premier business school graduates uh, what happened is that year while while we were in uh, hyderabad uh, mr naresh goel came by he was invited to one of the marketing functions and he came to campus and perhaps he he liked what he saw so he went back to the airline and told the hr department go and recruit for my sb so, so they didn't know what hit them and like i said there wasn't a management program established in jetways so it was usual recruitment people grow up the ladder and it was a struggle both for the airline and both for uh, for the for the recruited graduates as well because when we went into jet uh, jet didn't have an established uh, process to manage this thing right if you are in hll you know that you know uh, you will go in as a management trainee then you will go you know area sales manager or whatever there's a process and it's been done for many years and that organization knows how to manage that and jet uh, sort of struggled with it so we were first put into different kind of trainings so i'll tell you it was one of the most fabulous things that could have happened to anyone uh, by virtue of you know by default not by design so uh, jet didn't know what to do with these guys so jet said uh, training karo so uh, i went through i literally went through and worked in 30 departments in that airline many people who been in the airline for 10 years probably didn't even know that there are 30 departments in the airline so that was a uh, that was an amazing experience and uh, post the training i i ended up joining marketing team and uh, 
was uh, straight away thrown into uh, uh, jet privilege go take over the, there was this department already existing and the person who managed the department was moving on to manage another department and there was a vacancy and i was sent to take over so uh, went and went and you know started managing that team and i think a wonderful time Uh, coincidentally also very opportunistic time because during that window that i was managing jet privilege jet went through an ipo which means you need to dive deeper and deeper into the numbers understand the financials of the frequent flyer program and you know revenue and liability and deferred liability and you know revenue booking and all of that from a from a financial perspective because ipo is a pretty important thing for any organization right then jet went through an acquisition you acquired sahara so i had the responsibility of uh merging their frequent flyer program with african flyer program then i also had the responsibility of uh, while jet went from being a domestic airline to an international airline uh, as you know again time when i was heading the program so again my job to with my team recalibrate the program to make it an international program uh, uh, how will the international accrual work vis-a-vis how it worked when it was a domestic program tiers and platinum how many if platinum was only 60 flights maybe international maybe that's 20 flights for example that kind of number crunching so i think that led to my by necessity uh, going deeper and deeper into the science of uh, uh, loyalty management as a business so uh, i actually yeah. resigned from jet wanted to start up uh, loyalty rewards was incorporated uh, during my notice period in jet airways uh, and uh, i had a bunch of job offers when i left uh, jet privilege i didn't take any one of them because i wanted to start up right and i sat at home i sat at home and and tinkering with business ideas i went and met organizations and telling them retails and banks and telling them hey we could do this and we could do this to your consumer loyalty science and and they were already kicked about it this is a very nice idea let's do this bajay and i realized you know how will i do it i was just one guy i didn't even have a website level on technology or team or financials or so i realized that company aise nahi banta hai companies don't get created like that you, you need more than just the business understanding and uh, and of course two months you know salary didn't come in and that wasn't easy uh, so you know panicked saying hey you know it, it, i don't know how to start a company and i'm not getting paid so one of the job offers which i had when i left jet airways was mastercard so i actually called them back after two months and say hey uh, can i still come and work for you and yeah sure come so that's how i ended up working in mastercard so i was the head of mastercard's relationship with state bank of india so true blue account management job and state bank is a you know difficult client in the b2b world typically if you can manage state bank you can manage anyone it's a very demanding client but interesting to work with very big opportunities to to win together so i had a great time working with mastercard and state bank uh, but also i had enough time to write a business plan and and yeah like i said towards the end of my mastercard window uh, mastercard was the day job and weekend job was fundraising so i would practically go and meet every vc who can who's willing to give me half an hour and would go and pitch to them saying that hey this is my business plan this is what i want to do in the loyalty space can you fund me and and work for master what was your pitch like oh. it's really a paper plan uh, and uh, it doesn't get it doesn't get done it doesn't happen very often in india but i actually got funded one of those funds actually wrote me a term sheet <laughs> and i was surprised i said oh nice <laughs> and then i resigned after i got a term sheet i resigned okay and this was like just you alone uh, i mean you did not I have any co-founders yeah. none of it's that just you alone were, there was no team to talk about it was just yeah, an idea it's just an idea told. and a business plan and a ppt it's like it's not even me alone right it's not even me full <laughs> forget about co-founders team it's not even me full because i'm still working with mastercard i hadn't even started i hadn't even left to start up so it was not even me full it was really basically a paper plan more than anything else and uh, uh, i think what 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 really worked is perhaps you know i had worked in the loyalty space for four years and and that experience was useful so probably what i want to do was interesting and uh, Uh, these are also very early days for the venture capital industry itself uh, unlike india where funding happens in a little more often and little little uh, easier than those days when it was very early days but uh, like i said strangely enough uh, someone wrote me a term sheet and what was the business plan you had like how how did you see i think business monetized? plan was largely what got played out in loyalty rewards we didn't deviate a lot it was about managing loyalty programs for a whole bunch of organizations 
and the organizations would pay yes, you a fee. Yes, there were multiple revenue streams. Organizations will pay you a fees. We will also monetize the loyalty program per se. Uh, so if you have a million people in a loyalty program, you're running it for a retailer. So retailer will, of course, pay you for running that loyalty program. But then you'll also help the retailer generate some revenue from the loyalty program, from these million people. And if, if you have a million people and uh, each of them have, say, 5,000 rupees of discretionary spending capability in a month, that is 5 billion, right? Uh, 5 billion is uh, uh, 500 crores in a month. And if you are able to channelize that discretionary spend capability into your partner organizations, uh, and if you can take, you know, if you if you can take a percentage of that additional revenue that you're giving to those organizations for analyzing it, then you could make money. Strangely enough, you know, 2008, what happened again? It was one of the lowest, uh, you know, uh, corporate periods. That precisely when I started out. And uh, yeah, you know, I quit Mastercard. You know, started loyalty towards operations. Technically incorporated in you know June of 2006 when I left Jet, uh, but started operations as my being the first employee of the organization and uh, and and worked there for uh, ten years. Managed loyalty program for ten years uh, across India. That's pretty much what happened after that. What was exactly the tech product or the platform that you built? Uh, uh, it's more from a loyalty program management. So you you have you have say thousand consumers. You have their profile and you have accrual. You have redemption. You have communication opportunities to them. You have customer service. You have uh, uh, points uh, uh, accounting. So the holistic loyalty program management platform. I had used one like that when I was in Jet. Right. I ran the loyalty program using one of the loyalty platforms. In fact, that was another experience in interesting experience in jet when i started to work with jet privilege they had a different technology platform during my time there we changed the technology platform we we licensed a platform called chris uh, from emirates airlines incident emirates airlines is this tech division called mercator uh, and they had a loyalty program engine loyalty program management engine which we licensed so went through that implementation process getting a new platform in place etc there was again good learning so you know, all of that did help. So one of the first things that we did in Loyalty Rewards is to build our own technology platform. It took a bit, uh, but we said that rather than going and using some other existing loyalty engine, we want to have our own loyalty engine. So we took uh, uh, yeah, a few months to build that engine. And let's say I started in April, May office was in place. By the time we got to December, we were probably 10, 12 people, uh, out of which maybe six or seven were technology and three were non-technology how would a person use the loyalty program like they would get a card which they would swipe or they would uh, show the card number and the retailer's pos uh, would capture that and that pos would talk to your system and tell you that we didn't want to occupy a card slot in the consumer's wallet and we didn't want the consumer to pull out a card and do some incremental efforts for him to get those points we wanted to make it seamless that's on one hand uh, on the other hand, uh, luckily, our clients were all banks. Uh, so in India, interestingly, most of the banks that we started to work for didn't have a loyalty. And basic proposition from the bank to their consumers was that, hey, use your debit card to pay directly at a shop rather than going to an ATM, withdrawing money and then going to a shop and spending, right? So you have a debit card in your pocket. Don't think that it is an ATM card. And consumers didn't know that at that point of time, 99% uh, of the debit cards issued by these banks were being used as ATM cards. So consumers would go to an ATM, withdraw cash, and then go spend that cash. For bank, it's a double whammy because every time consumers withdraw money from an ATM, it's a transaction, right? It costs bank money. And uh, on the other hand, if they could get the consumers to spend directly at a merchant outlet, as an, as an issuing bank, the bank would make some money. Bank would get what they call interchange. So it was, you know, it was classic 101 where you knock off cost on one side when you don't have an ATM transaction and convert that into debit card transactions on the other side, you generate revenue. So it was a profitable model for the banks. And we were telling the banks that, listen, launch a loyalty program to incentivize this behavior. Banks found sense in it. And so we were essentially saying, just use your ATM card and go and spend. Whenever you spend directly using the ATM card, we will give you some points. 
we in the sense the bank would give you, give the, give those points so when did you acquire the, the first few banks uh, strange and again a lucky break for us our first client was also the largest client anybody could aspire to get so our first client was state bank of india wow and this was because <laughs> of the mastercard relationship uh, partially yes but not so much Uh, the reason why I say partially yes is because at least I knew uh, who is who in State Bank, but uh, uh, answer is no because knowing who's who didn't help us get the deal. So I I did go and tell say State Bank, hey, why don't you run a loyalty program and convert all of these debit card transactions into into these ATM transactions into debit card transactions? And State Bank said, sounds good. tell us a little more about it so we said worked with their team and gave them the full you know uh, spiel about how this is a profitable model and what are the details of running this model and at the end of all of the state bank said this is all good uh, but who will run this i said we can run it for you but they said no we can't we can't just give it to you we are a public sector bank and so we need to do an rfp and i felt you know quite let down because i had worked with the bank for a few months to to generate interest and make them understand the benefit of having this and all of that but you know public sector bank is uh, you know it is what it is so they had to do an rfp they did an rfp you know 10 15 companies came and pitched for it and uh, there were different rounds of you know 10 companies became 15 companies then seven companies then five companies then last three companies and eventually we won that rfp and that rfp was you know so hard for us to win it was it was online you know reverse auction forward auction all of that state bank did so we had to bid we had to bid and quote the lowest charge to win that we were l1 and then we won it and uh, yeah then honestly akshay there was no looking back after that uh, from state bank then punjab national bank uh, then central bank of india then bank of india then Union Bank, then Corporation Bank, then Karur Vaisya Bank, then and you know Federal Bank. In in how much time? Like you know, like are you talking like within a year you acquired all these banks? No, or? I think that's what that's was another, the trajectory. That's another interesting thing which we did when we won State Bank. Of course, there was a big win, and I know our, our investors were very happy that you know gave this bloke some money. But it seems to be like they got a good client. So. so shall we go and get a whole bunch of new clients then and we said no so internally as a team by then in loyalty rewards we said you know we've beaten off something very large let's chew this well let's not go after the rest of the markets very well because we need to prove it to ourselves as well as to the bank that we can run this well because that was the first client uh, uh, we had one or two small you know retail clients by then but they were not really any anything substantial state bank was the first real large client right? and so oh, we put our head down and didn't do anything anything else for 12 months we lit, and i think that was one of the smartest things that we did when i look back we literally put our heads down got our technology in place got the processes in place got the people in place and started to run that bank's program really really well and by the end of 12 months the number of debit card transactions that the bank had really took off so we had this interesting graph which said pre loyalty program 24 months and post loyalty program launch 12 months and you can see a decisive departure where the line goes up once the program is launched so we only needed that uh, uh, graph to take shape and get our processes and technology in place so after 12 months then we went to town to meet other banks we just had to present this saying hey you know this is what loyalty program does to you and when this happens for you this is the math you know you save so much money from atm transactions you make so much revenue from post transactions so this is the math and i think we signed up 10 banks in the next 12 months that was pretty rapid and you would also take care of uh, marketing the program to the bank yes. customers we used to call it end to end loyalty program management so starting from uh, uh, managing crediting points to consumers account to uh, facilitating redemption of those points to carrying out you know millions and then hundreds and hundreds of millions of marketing emails and you know sms campaigns to uh, building the website for the loyalty program managing that online consumers could come and log in and redeem and view their points all of that to uh, managing the customer service center where a consumer could call and say hey you know i have these many points what can i do with it all of that so so it was fairly end to end where the bank got their loyalty program managed 100% it was we, our pitch was itself 
you know, end-to-end loyalty program management, uh, their websites, their mobile apps. And by then, my technology team was, like I said, six, seven people. Then it became 25 people. Then tech team was 50 people. By the time I actually exited the company, my tech team was maybe 120 people, 120 people technology team. When I was exiting again, Loyalty Rewards ran loyalty program for 73% of all debit cards issued in India. You know, that's a humongous market share, right? That's a country as large as India. And to give you numbers, that is also adding up to a billion consumer profile. So at some point of time in our technology systems, we had profiles of consumers across different programs that we run, not deduping cumulatively a billion consumer profiles for which we ran loyalty programs. In fact, in the quarter that I exited, uh, that is end of 17, December 17, the cumulative value of loyalty points in the market uh, exceeded 1000 crores. Uh, so the program had got scaled reasonably well. We were, we were, you know, points accrual. We were crediting, I think over 5 billion points a month. Uh, and 200 million transactions every month. Those numbers were, you know, a billion consumer profiles, 73% market share. So it had, by then it had got played out well, stabilized. Uh, you know, organization had matured. There were processes and HR department and employee handbook and leave policies and all of that. And it, it became a you know, reasonably stable organization. So why did you decide to exit? Uh, multiple reasons. One is uh, the smaller reasons first and most important reason last. One is, you know, I had an investor right from the beginning, like day zero. So I looked at my investors more as partners rather than actually venture capital investors. I felt that we pretty much built this together. It's never that I started a company and an investor came in later. This is my company. I felt that this is our company and uh, Canon and uh, Venture East and great board meetings, great investor relations. Like every other founder investor relationship, we've had our highs and lows, we've had our fights. But I think more or less, you know, overall, I really liked my investors and I think they played an important important role in helping me mature as an entrepreneur and in 2015 uh, investors exited so the series c uh, was more of a strategic investment where uh, strategic invest invested into the company and acquired series a and b investors which investor this was, was that? Desk, a company called india ideas they acquired my series a and b and they also invested uh, a substantial amount into the company as primary investment as part of the series c fundraise so uh, one is after my investors exited, I sort of felt a little lonely because I had really gone close. We, I think we had professional relationship grown over a period of time into personal relationships and uh, love, hate as it will be always, but it was a good relationship. And, and, you know, it was, I felt a little lonely. They were almost like co-founders. They, they were, you know, not, I can't say that about Series B, but I can say that, you know, Venturis definitely was there from day zero, uh, but than co-founders we had very healthy relationship and very i'm also one of those founders who engage with the investors a lot it was not like take the money and tata bye bye i actually worked with them closely i kept them informed about what's going on took advice very very seriously whenever i felt confused didn't feel you know uh, uncomfortable picking up the phone and calling them and saying hey what do you think about it i, I can't i can't figure out what's your advice and i think they, they felt good about that as well and so the relationship was very healthy. And when they suddenly left from the board, uh, there was no more that kind of board meetings. And, you know, we weren't drinking after the board meetings and we were not celebrating as much as we used to. I felt a little lonely. That's point one. Uh, point two, by then, company had also got stabilized, uh, Akshay. It, we had our systems and processes in place. And I think some of the things that we did were very, very useful for me. You know, we had, we had, we had a quarterly appraisals. It started off as annual appraisals. And then at some point of time, we broke that into four quarters. And we also made appraisals a very quantitative process. So every person in the organization, irrespective of whether it's a tech role or operations role or sales role or relationship role, the requirement, what was the expected result from that employee was broken down into numbers. If it's a relationship, we would say you would need to meet your client X number of times in a month. And if you have met X number of times, you will get score X, otherwise Y. So we're very, very quantitative. 
so that when you sit down for your appraisal it was 5 minutes it's over because that person will come for 3 months i had to do 27 visits i have done 32 i got 110 uh, and if it's if it's 120% you get x percent if it's 100% you get y if it's 80% if it's 60% these grades were formed so much so that you know everybody had absolutely good degree of understanding what need to be done and the task of setting this target for the year has to be done once in a year in either february or march and april you kick that off and everybody just goes by uh, like that the many other processes were very very process driven as an organization and very quantitative as an organization and very people independent to a very large extent and as a result towards the last few years last couple of years i started to find myself more free than not i needed only 3 or 4 hours Uh, in 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 a day to run that organization and still grow at 80 or 90% year on year so okay. it was cruising reasonably well and then my investors had exited and you know i i i have always been a workaholic and the kind of a guy who goes to office at 8:30 in the morning every day and there till 10 o'clock 11 o'clock every day and i started to find myself reaching office at 10:30 and 11 and i started to see myself leaving at 5:36 and things were great things were growing well so i had this you know largish office in a reasonably decent sized team and i could sit in one corner as the founder ceo a lot of respect and young employees who come and join they want to talk to the ceo once in a month when there is a coffee with ceo session where they so it was it was a lot of glory and all of that but i wasn't you know i wasn't burning and uh, yeah i i probably that's not what i like i'm probably a builder than somebody who wants to sit back and soak it in and around this period a new idea gotten into the head i cooked it in my head for maybe you know close to a year and then i felt that this is something which i believe in passionately and it's also very difficult so it will be challenging so i went and spoke to the people who who had acquired my series a and b investors saying that hey listen this is going great and you guys are great but you know you don't need me it's only 3 hours and i'm not you know fully busy so why don't you just buy me out as well and i will exit um they were great guys actually you know they were really great guys how much uh, stake did you have uh, at that time um they had significant majority let me put it like that uh, but i was still the promoter and uh, md and ceo uh, had series a series b and series c as part of series they had also put in 120 crores primary capital into the company so they had substantial uh, equity but i was still the founder uh, and it was important for me to have them buy me out uh, and then my exit because you know that's the wealth that you've created over a period of 10 years uh, you know as part of their investing into the company there was of course various you know put options and call options and exit timelines and all of that i think none of us really looked at any of those agreements when i spoke to those guys uh, like i said they were great guys uh, they they first said hey this is going so well and we want you to run this for a long time uh, i said yeah you know nobody starts to leave but i'm getting passionate about something else and i'm not busy running this you know 3 4 years 3 4 hours a day is all it takes and then we spoke a few more times and that's over a period of a few months you know i came back and thought about it do i really want to exit you know can i be you know living without loyalty rewards which has been you know something which i created i founded and ran it to this level do i want to leave this company uh, am i really passionate enough to do the other thing and um, they were very graceful i think neither them nor i ever looked at any one of those agreements neither did we have uh, too much of haggle around valuation or etc you know we we sat in a room and talked about it and we agreed on a number and uh, they uh, they just bought me out and i exited it was a fairly pleasant and peaceful way of exiting an organization like i said we never went back and looked at what was written in the agreement neither from their side nor from my side and uh, yeah they were making concessions for me to exit uh, i must acknowledge that and uh, i was not being a sticky guy in the process in which i exited or the valuation that i was asking for so uh, it takes two to tango and it is all good exited in the end of end of uh, uh, december 2017 so i started in 8 and ran it till 17 it's actually 3 months short of 9 years so i generally say it's 10 years a window and yeah 1st of january 2018 started the new venture pretty much all over again again you woke up one day and you had no office to go to it's pretty much like that it's actually pretty much like that besides the fact that this time i was a little more matured i had 10 years behind me i knew a thing or two about how to start a company 
it was not a green horn uh, uh, so it was not the same experience but in some way it is yeah overall overall a different experience also this is a global global setup so so tell me about the idea which took a year to mature in your mind uh, it's a it's a it's an innovative concept uh, actually it's something which not intuitively think of but the deeper that you think ideally the you know you should get scared about it uh, the way the digital world is currently right uh, all of us are extremely connected to the digital world uh, we use all kinds of digital products and uh, overall across this digital world connected to everything and holding every everything together is this thing that we call the internet right and the internet plays uh, an important role in everyone's life including this conversation everything is connected to the internet and we are all comfortable the way how the way it's working out in fact we are more than comfortable right we know you know if you were driving across to meet me you time 27 minutes away from your place you know because your google map is on and you know precise location while you tweeted and you send a whatsapp to somebody you reply to an email you're totally connected and powerful but that's on one hand you know you have Uh, uh close to you know 3 to 4 billion people who use internet every day today in some way when you look at it these 3 or 4 billion people on one hand while they feel extremely powerful and connected and all of that in reality i started to feel that each one of us are ex- actually extremely powerless you know we are actually users of the internet by virtue of having no other choice and as a matter of fact everything that you use on the internet are owned managed and controlled by some other organization in some way let me put it another way in an interesting ways in the physical world that we all live in you live in delhi you have a house there and you know different parts of the places where people live if you look at this physical world and if you rewind a few centuries back there was a period called monarchy right when kings and emperors and rulers kingdoms and during that window it there might have been a period when literally 10 people in the world own all land on earth if you are chandragupta maurya you you own your kingdom you pretty much own your kingdom if anybody builds a big fence around his land and declares that this land is mine then chandragupta maurya's people will come and kill him that kingdom belongs to king and the people live at the pleasure of the king and people are called subjects but of course people loved their king king took care of their people life is good but in some way the digital world today is evolved to a similar point where physical world was in monarchy where literally a few handful of companies own everything that is on the internet and there is no concept called private ownership of the internet just the same way it was in the digi- in the in the monarchy in the physical world where there was no concept called private ownership so because of the way internet is owned basically you know i'll tell you a, a startling number that that actually if you add everything there is on the internet together put everything together into one big bucket in terms of data in terms of gigabytes or terabytes or petabytes or hexabytes quantify all the data on the internet would you believe it if i tell you that almost 99% of all data on the internet are controlled and owned by just two companies which two companies are those your guess is as good as mine even google and facebook because both these companies also have gigantic uh, uh, wings within themselves right you have you know which is the second highest searched website in the world besides google google is where maximum search happens where is the second highest number of search happens would you know facebook no not aware youtube today whatever you want to know how to make irish coffee you go search on youtube right so that's that's also google uh, gmail you know 2 billion people on an average if you have uh, uh, 5 gb of data in your mailbox that's 25 billion gbs of data owned accessed controlled by one company in their servers with consumers having fairly zero degree of control so what was the business idea that evolved from this thought so process? that's a good question so if this is how the internet is structured today and consumers are all you know sleeping in some way this is like matrix where we are all plugged into the internet we are all using internet we are seemingly made to feel happy but we are actually quite powerless and one day you're going to have to wake up and realize that you know you are absolutely powerless and internet is owned and controlled by just few companies so what can you do about it so with the privacy being such a big concern and with the way your digital life is currently structured where 
you know your digital information is scattered all over so that's where we came up with this thought that the true solution to this problem a structural fundamental deep level solution to this problem is ownership actually unless consumers actually have ownership you will never have privacy that is a fundamental premise of our product that is a core concept of our product on top of that of course you've built you know additional you know positioning of the product in the consumer's mind and features and functionalities and services and all of that so you are selling consumers their own space on the internet no i wouldn't put it that simply our product is a little more little more complex maybe eventually it might eventually have a simplistic uh, positioning statement or line but actually our product is a little more com- you know uh, the concept is a little more than just that but let me build on it so if you want to have privacy and for that if you need to really own your own place on the internet let's come back to the physical world right from the time of chandragupta maurya monarchy period when there was no concept of private ownership to fast forward to today's world where private ownership as a concept is one of the fundamental pillars of human society but how does the private ownership get manifested mostly mostly get manifested in the form of a home in this physical world to think of it today for example in this physical world the most private place that you have is your home it need not even be a owned home home as a concept rented home or owned home doesn't matter that's a uh, you know legal uh, position but your your home is the most private place for you in this world home is also the place where you keep all your personal stuff that belongs to you right there is a whole bunch of things that you keep in the office who does that belong to that belongs to your company where do you keep your personal things that you own? you keep it at home that's private place that you have in this world so we are saying that it is time now for all of us to actually have a digital home as well just the same way we have a physical home it's time for us to have a digital home that's our core uh, concept and then it evolves from there a little bit more but the core concept is it's time for you to have a digital home So that was Vijay talking about his next big bet that he's hoping will transform the internet for consumers. Tell us what you think about his idea and if you would like to sign up for the product by mailing us at hello@thepodium.in. If you like the Founder Thesis podcast, then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books and drama. visit the podium.in that is t h e p o d i u m . i n for a complete list of all our shows this was an hd smartcast original hd smartcast log on to hdsmartcast.com to listen to more such podcasts